Welcome to the Horror Vanguard, your one-stop shop for everything from Adorno to Zardoz. Prepare to get spooky. <laughs> Friends, comrades, and fans, welcome to the first episode of a brand new horror podcast. This is the Horror Vanguard. Here we will be exploring uh, all the very best that horror culture has to offer, as well as the most rigorous anti-capitalist leftist theory. Uh, my name is John, better known as the Licrit Guy, and joining me is my co-host and comrade. Over to you. Hey creeps, I'm Ash. I'm currently working on my PhD. I've got my master's in gothic studies. As for tendency, I'm a diehard, no-holds-bar gothic socialist. All other tendencies are not spooky enough. If you're not willing to mask up as a phosphorescent ghost, a haunted suit of armor, or maybe even minor 49er and spook the capitalists right out of the abandoned carnival grounds, you are no ally to the left. Yeah. <laughs> On a more serious note, uh, my background is heavily informed by anarchism. Chomsky is probably the thinker I've looked to the most. Mm. I would say that I've moved from anarcho-syndicalism more towards anarcho-communism now. Mm -hmm. uh, but with that said, and I think John will agree with me on this point, uh, tendency isn't the most important issue on the left right now in our current uh, material and cultural condition. Uh, the tendency infighting is just something that's holding us back, and it's really not worth the Twitter points to be dunking on each other when there's a lot of community building to do. Hell yes. Down with the monster of sectarianism and splitting. That is not what we are about here at the Horror Vanguard. Um, for those of you who maybe have not come across me before, my name is John. I am a gothic Marxist, um, and I am interested in the ways in which radical theory and the, uh, the the kind of monsters of horror cinema can interact in profitable ways. Um, so before we start things properly, uh, Ash, do you want to talk a little bit about why we decided to do this and what it is about horror and left theory that we think goes together so well? Yeah, this podcast came about from a conversation John and I recently had about all of the territory the left broadly has ceded to the right. There are so many aspects of our culture where we kind of have just shrugged it off and said, well, oh, that's not really worth our attention or that's something that's been so co-opted by right-leaning ideologies. And horror is definitely one of those things. Yeah, totally. Um, I've talked about this quite a lot online and on various other podcasts. Shout out to Rev Left and the Antifada, especially for the need for us on the left to kind of take seriously uh, culture, to contest it, to make sure that it isn't ceded uh, to the kind of service of capitalism, to the service of reactionaries. Um, and that's what we want to do here at the Horror Vanguard. So with that in mind, we turn to our first spooky and seasonal uh, film for discussion in this, our premiere episode. Uh, Ash, do you want to do you want to give us some uh, introduce the film, give us some context, and set up what we're talking about? Absolutely, John. The year is 1974, and Bob Clark has filmed what is probably the second or third slasher movie ever made, Black Christmas. Set in the United States, although filmed in Canada, the movie features one of the first slasher killers ever stalking a uh, house of sorority girls while they go about their lives. Spoiler warning, if you have not seen Black Christmas, just make sure you'll know that plot details may well come out in what we're talking about in the next next few minutes. Yeah, this podcast is not for cowards who are afraid of spoilers. We will spoil <laughs> everything. We, we will not warn you about spoilers. Spoilers will just attack you randomly here. So if you're not up to date on your uh, mildly obscure horror movies from the 70s, that is most certainly not our fault. Yeah, it came out in 1974. It is not too soon to be dropping spoilers. You have had plenty of time, uh, probably longer than many of our listeners have been alive to come up with this film so get on board guys <laughs> right and this this is a cultural touchstone for horror cinema so where have you been honestly i mean uh let's let's kind of start there what did you what do you think about this what are your kind of like general thoughts on on black christmas so i think uh like many of our historical artifacts that kind of form the foundation of uh whatever art movements we appreciate black black christmas doesn't necessarily age quite as well 
as as it could have, but I, I found the film really engaging. There were there was a lot of artistic decisions in the cinematography that I just absolutely fell in love with while I was watching this. Okay, this is so true because before we started recording, Ash and I both looked up uh, Bob Clark, the director's filmography, and that man, comrade Bob Clark, <laughs> um, <laughs> that man produced some absolutely grade A schlock. Just a kind of run of amazing cinematic uh, junk food and garbage. The visionary mind of Bob Clark has brought us such titles as Black Christmas, A Christmas Story, All of the Porky's Films, <laughs> and Super Babies, Baby Genius, 1 and 2. Baby Genius has got a sequel! It got a, it got a sequel! Right? Like, like that, that is how visionary this man is, is he saw a world that had room for not only one, but two movies called Baby Genius. Uh, but, like, this is true, though. This is something else that I would totally agree with, that it would have been really easy for Black Christmas to be kind of low-grade, schlocky garbage. But there are some great directorial choices. There are some genuinely uh, beautiful shots. Really unsettling POV work as well in the mm. in the uh, cinematography and camera work. And um, you know he did not have to put this amount of effort in. You know he could have he could have done this for like a third of the budget, and it still would have found a kind of market because the seventies that was the boom time for the low grade slasher. And in many ways, it is paradigmatic of the genre. Uh, but there's there is it. It's got a rare quality in both the direction and I have to say the cast, which you don't necessarily expect to find. Yeah, I think this is something that we'll find to be as we uh, go on and discuss more movies. This is something that's very emblematic of schlock horror in particular, is that unlike other genres where the distinction between like the schlocky clone Transformers movies that pop up a week after the actual <laughs> Transformers movie releases. God bless the asylum. <laughs> they are truly the heroes of cinema and they should be appreciated as such. But I, but I think that this is something that we're going to find that pops up with schlock horror in particular, is that the line between the really low budget, low grade, uh, just kind of ground out junk horror and the, um, if you will, auteurs of the field and the people uh, really pushing artistic envelopes is is a lot smaller than it would seem. And that a lot of these directors and a lot of these actors um, are schlock because they're working under uh, ridiculously tight budgets, ridiculously uh, tight constraints and censorship, but they're still managing to produce uh, a lot of incredible and engaging artwork that winds up being foundational to horror cinema. And, and this absolutely is kind of credited as one of the first like serious slasher movies. Uh, it's clearly a big influence on John Carpenter, who would go on to make Halloween. Um, mm -hmm. so, so this has got quite a legacy. So like, let's, let's just kind of maybe flesh out the plot just a little. So we're set in a, a sorority house during the Christmas season um, featuring uh, the uh, wonderful... Uh, Margot Kidder playing uh, a character called Bob uh, and uh, Olivia Hussey playing Jess and the, the, them and the other sorority sisters are being disturbed at Christmas by a series of deeply unsettling phone calls um, and that is how the story begins and unfolds. Uh, it comes with maybe one of the classic twists in horror cinema Um which I will I will not spoil here. I, I'm feeling charitable. It's a first episode, after all. It, um, it is the season of giving. <laughs> and it has a kind of weirdly bleak and ambiguous ending, um, which I found sort of genuinely unsettling. Um, but let's let's kind of try and dig into this a little bit more, right? Let's let's get a little more detailed into what we want to talk about. Uh, so let's uh, start with this, the phone calls, right? With the these weird, creepy phone calls that this sorority house gets. Um, Ash, do you want to start there? Yeah, so, so early on in the film, we are privy to these prank phone calls that the sorority house has been receiving for what we are led to believe to be quite some time. And very uh, sexually explicit, disgusting calls of harassment that are through a very distorted voice that you can't quite understand a lot of what they're saying, but you pick up every now and then 
that that it's basically someone on the other end uh, sexually harassing the women of the sorority house. Mm. Barb, who's maybe a kind of more, she's often filmed drink, like she's often shown like drinking quite heavily. Is one who kind of like sort of denigrates whoever is on the other end of the phone and kind of yes. like fires back. Um, and that is the kind of catalyst for what happens in the course of the film, right? I do believe uh, during the first phone call with Barb, she, she's kind of like, she's striking back at whoever this creep is on the other line, you know, saying she says something to the effect of like, go stick it in a light socket. <laughs> like, like Barb, Barb is the unsung hero of this film. Absolutely. Uh, and Mrs. Mac, who we'll get into later. Or Miss Mac, rather. We will get into that a little bit later on. But um, the the kind of uh, anonymized and sort of very, very sexually explicit misogynistic phone calls, which are the kind of catalyst for this plot, it kind of does link back into sort of contemporary conditions around, especially around things like online uh, abuse, right? Yeah, it's definitely interesting. And this is something that I noticed when I was watching through this is that the anonymous nature of the slasher killer in this one really reflects the current condition of the, you know, anonymized violence people receive over the Internet. Like the opening scene of Black Christmas is a still shot of this, you know, opulent suburban mansion. And then we we kind of pull into a POV shot of the slasher killer sneaking around the building, looking in the windows, kind of voyeuristically watching the mm. women of the sorority house. You really get to read that th this is kind of a physical embodiment of what the current state of online harassment is. You know, it's it's sexually explicit. It's it's very vulgar. It's emboldened by how anonymous it has become. Yeah, yeah, totally. And they do try and like go to the cops about this, right? Yeah, yeah, they do. They they try on several occasions to mixed results to to go to the police and get them to do something. And you know, in each of the initial encounters when they go to the police, the, the police just kind of shrug it off. Like for each uh, kind of inquiry they have, they have to return to the police a second time in order to get them to actually do something about it and it's yeah, not yeah. until um the body of janice is found janice is a woman i don't believe we ever actually meet her or see her no janice is uh janice is uh, like a schoolgirl who goes missing mm -hmm. it's not until that happens and janice's body is found that the police actually start to mobilize some kind of resistance to the uh slasher killer yeah because what what's uh, what's amazing is that like the kind of structure of this story implants very early on the the disappearance of this of this young girl and the harassment of these uh, sorority sisters is like inextricably linked right these things are co-constitutive of one another but when they go to the cops uh because cops are bad what the cops do is go oh we can't deal with the harassing phone calls that you've been getting because something more important has come up when in fact that something more important is directly related to and informed by that same harassment that they're going through exactly like like and this makes me think of um all of the cases especially around gamergate of assault where where uh you know like these women went to the police with these claims and they went to the fbi with these claims and everybody in a position of authority were like oh what are we gonna do you know we can't find this person that's totally anonymous you know it's probably just some prankster have you thought about maybe not going online <laughs> oh yeah yeah the, inf the infamous take of like why don't you just get a brand new life and a brand new, brand new, in this case, a brand new home. Or, or And it's kind of, uh, again, this is one of the elements of the film that maybe hasn't aged amazingly because the, the cops go, oh, oh, some widow is making kind of weird, aggressively sexual moaning phone calls to you. It's probably a boyfriend. Uh, and you go, hang on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wait, wait, what? <laughs> I, I definitely think that... Um Jess's boyfriend yeah, yeah. was probably the best red herring I've seen in a horror movie in a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Peter, the musician, this he's described as a kind of neurotic uh, musician. Uh, and there is a there's a great twist um, that occurs uh, with Peter that is 
really, really, he's because he set up as like a, this deeply unpleasant character, really. Because oh yeah, uh, Jess, well, because he is he he is kind of a scumbag. Oh, he's he's he is not a good guy because uh, Jess is this seemingly pretty uh, bright and proactive and a gentle character. Um, she tells Peter, her boyfriend, that she's pregnant. Uh, but she doesn't want to have a baby. She's going to have an abortion. Um, and this guy goes, oh, only thinking about yourself, I see. And then kind of tries to sort of semi-blackmail her into marrying him. Uh, and you sort of see this kind of conflict. This is that That's what sets off the, the incredibly bleak ending, is him being unable to cope with female agency. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with that. I think that Peter's really representative of of what today we would consider like fragile masculinity and toxic masculinity. You know, he can't conceive of a world where his girlfriend is somehow beyond his control or has agency without him. Yeah, and I think that's really exemplified when Peter pushes the issue of marriage, and he's like, because at first Jess responds with, "Well, you know, like I, I have my ambitions, and I and I want to complete uh, college and go on with my life." And Peter counters with, well, you can still do all those things if you're married to me. Mm. And then Jess just flatly lays it out and says she doesn't want to marry him. And and for me, I, th- I, th- I thought that was just a fantastically powerful moment that they didn't that the film didn't need to couch yeah. her not wanting to marry him in anything other than her own choice. She's she's totally unapologetic about it. And he then just threatens her and goes, you're going to be sorry. Mm-hmm. And you're like, uh, dude, <laughs> like, just back off. He's this, right. he's this kind of, he's set up as a, as a sort of uh, sensitive arty type, but there's beneath that kind he is, of... He is the suffering artist. He's the pseudo-woke uh, liberal uh, white guy, because then he's, he's, as soon as he is sort of uh, resisted or pushed back against in any way, he turns into this sort of vile misogynist. The other, the other point that I wanted to sort of quickly bring up is this issue of class right because this is an this is a film that is ripe for not just a gendered analysis but a class analysis as well and those two things absolutely inform one another in various ways uh, and this is where we get to bring in your favorite character from this film right yes yeah the the, the hero of this film the woman who hid a, a bottle of liquor in every conceivable location, <laughs> Miss Mac. Uh, do you want to do you want to flesh this out a little bit? Who is she? Why does she? Why is why is Miss Mac so important? So Miss Mac is the cornerstone of this film. I, I would go as far as to say she is the Citizen Kane of Black <laughs> Christmas. So uh, Miss Mac is the sorority house mother. That is a job that's basically the caretaker of not only the property of the sorority house, but also the uh, women who are staying there as part of the sorority. Uh, today, uh, they're more commonly known as sorority house managers or just property managers for the sorority. The mm. basic uh, nature of the job is you live in the sorority house, you manage the house's budget, i.e. buying uh, household cleaning supplies, all of the food, handling the cooking, micromanaging whatever staff take care of the house, like a cleaning staff or gardeners. Uh, but in addition to that, you also take care of all of the women of the sorority house. You're kind of expected to be uh, there for them when they need you. And if you read the job descriptions that pop up online, a lot of these hint that you should have some kind of background in psychology, oh, which, well. which is like... <laughs> Yeah, which is which is just incredibly dark that you have to be this like live in jack of all trades, including professional medicine. Yeah, yeah. And so this is kind of like an acceleration of the uh, unpaid, unpaid uh, women's labor, right? This is like a really strong example of unpaid women's emotional labor. And and of course, institutionalizing that because you go, oh, well, the, the property managers are providing a mental health care and the emotional labor that a university no longer has to pay for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's also incredibly damning of universities that they don't offer these services. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's fascinating that this comes out in the 70s because around the same time, you have something like the, the International Wages for Housework campaign, which kicks off from the International Feminist Collective in Italy in 1972. Um, Silvia Federici the great Marxist uh, feminist 
uh, from Italy, who's, who's a kind of key figure in the wages for housework movement, making the kind of foundational point that if this, this, this is labor that is essential to the reproduction of the capitalist structure, and it is done on, in a way that is systematically exploited and systematically unwaged. Because I think, I think this sorority house uh, mistress, uh, sorority house mother, as she's referred to, she clearly does not enjoy her job, right? Oh, no. She, she loathes every aspect of this job. It's the emotional labor of the service industry. Every time she's around the sorority girls, she, she's the uh, loving and kind of doting old mother figure. And she's like, oh, haha, girls, go on, scamper about. And the second they're gone, she's like, oh, those brats. And she's like pulling, pulling a bottle of whiskey out of a hollowed out book in the book. <laughs> she got one hidden in the cistern in the bathroom. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, was, that was my favorite. There, there's one hidden in one of the bedrooms. So, so we're we oh, are yeah, yeah. very much led to believe that they're... She is never uh, beyond arm's reach of a bottle in this film. I mean, I totally understand this because I've I've worked service jobs which just sucked. Um, and what what happens is you have to kind of instantiate a kind of dual self. So you become the kind of smiling professional uh, service provider who is happy to bend over backwards to these people who, who don't really see you as a person. Um, you, there's, there's a kind of systematic alienation if you're in the service industry, because as soon as you have the right uniform on and the bat and the name badge, you kind of disappear as, as, as sort of either as a means to get what that other person wants, or you're the impediment to, to them getting what they want. Um, if you have ever been in the position of having somebody asked to speak to your manager, you will totally understand what I mean. Mm-hmm. One of the clearest examples of this we see in the film is uh, and towards the very beginning, there's a small gift exchange between the women of the sorority house and Miss Mack. And uh, for, for her gift, Miss Mack receives this uh, god-awful, hideous nightgown that is... <laughs> it's so tasteless. It is, it is the tasteless armor of, of what every hackneyed, like, doddering housemother figure wears. It is it is this yeah. sexless, identityless like, garb. And of course, when Miss Matt gets it, because the, the women of the sorority house are effectively her clientele, and if she doesn't please them, she probably risks losing her job. She, 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 mm. She's just like, oh, girls, thank you so much. It's wonderful. And then they, they they kind of like go to her into putting it on, and 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 the whole time like like you you can see her 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 hatred of this thing, and she's like, oh, I I'd really rather not. And then like seconds later, she's <laughs> drinking again. Yeah, under- understandably, right? Because she's reduced to this sort of functionality, you know what? And this is, uh, you know, Marx talks about this in terms of alienation. Yep. And and even and even the way in which. Uh, capitalism forces us to act unethically towards one another by using others as a means to get a kind of satisfaction of our needs rather than as ends in themselves. She's not kind of treated as a person. She's like a means to to an end for these oh, yeah. uh, sorority sisters. And we, we see that so clearly uh, in the gifting of that nightgown. Like they do not, they don't know. They don't, they don't get her. Yeah, they, 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 they don't know Mrs. Mack. They don't know her life. They don't know what she cares about. They, they just know that she's the goofy old lady that buys their groceries. So they get her a goofy. And it's so telling, isn't it? That like um, so many of these sorority, uh, the people who live in the sorority house, clearly like it's a nice house even by the 70s standards like it's it's beautiful it's elegant it has like a library Mm -hmm. like they're clearly well off you know this is a this is a an affluent area of of uh of the country um but there is this very stark class divide i think between uh the uh women of the sorority um and um one of the it's claire's father right claire yeah, is Mr. one of the characters Harrison. who uh, here, claire sadly dies very quickly and very early on in the film and then uh mr harrison her father turns up and he's a he is a he he is the i i wish to speak to your manager <laughs> like oh, just yeah. made flesh um, but at the same time, like the police of this town and the, the, the townsfolk that turn out to go looking for this missing girl 
who later it's revealed has been murdered. They're, they they are the, this kind of caricature of like working class people. They they all drink. Mm-hmm. They they they're all rude. They're sort of they don't have the same polished manners. There's a moment towards the end of the film where like two people from the search party turn up at the house with uh, Jess and another one of the characters, and they they tell them. Uh, that they need to lock their windows. And as they, they, these two kind of like working class guys, these two blue collar guys turn away. One of them says to the other, Oh, I'd rather face a killer than, than the horror of like just normal working class people turning up at your door, telling you to try and be careful. These two guys, the way they play off in the film is they're a little, they're a little creepy but they're but they're by no means threatening. They're they're well-meaning yeah. working class goofs who might be a little drunk. You know, yeah. and, and they really they, they really press the issue of how important it is to lock your doors and lock your windows, oh, yeah. you got to be safe. I was just going to say it's like it just sort of underscored to me the extent to which universities depend upon a process of gentrification and exclusion, right? That is a nice house that none of them working class folk get to go into. So a quick note about that house, but I wasn't able to find the specific house, but the house next to it sold uh, recently for $5.5 million to give an idea for, for the... Uh, <laughs> For, for the wealth and class that is behind this type of building. Yeah, but like the contemporary university is a, is a capitalist organization, which increasingly makes its power felt through violence of gentrification and property development, right? So pre- presumably at some point, that house was not owned by a sorority. Yes. And then they, they've expanded and they've moved into this area that seems to be made up of predominantly you know, blue collar, uh, working class people and they treat them with sort of contempt. Absolutely. And like, like that, that is the effect of gentrification is that these, the, the upper class forces of capital move into a neighborhood and then proceed to sap the life out of it until the people whose neighborhood that is by any, uh, measure of right are, are reduced to nothing but these caricatures of uh, labor that, that are imprisoned in these neighborhoods now. And I actually thought it was very striking. This is something you said before we started recording that like we, I was sort of expecting in the, like the climactic final struggle that the house is like, this is a very common thing that the house catches fire, right? The house, the house will burn down, but no, no, we open and close this film on shots of this beautiful multi-million dollar mansion and it's like no matter how many people have to die the 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 asset endures right the asset gets handed on down the house the house in this film is kind of the the ultimate emblem of capital itself right uh even at the close of the movie the the police haven't found all of the bodies in the attic they eschew checking the attic at the end of the film to 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 run off to some other random tasks that have popped up on their radar Oh yeah, there are like reporters yeah, outside, so you have to deal with the, the optics of this. So as we as we pan out on on this beautiful night shot of, of the, the, the this house with its Christmas decorations up, there there are bodies rotting in the attic. Like this is the ultimate signifier of capital in this film. That that it doesn't matter how many people have died inside. It doesn't matter that their bodies are still fresh and waiting there. That capital itself does not care. That house is still valued mm. in the millions. It's still standing. It's going to continue operating as as mm. this bastion of of the hoarding of financial wealth. So solidarity with the townsfolk. And right, yes. <laughs> solidarity with everyone in that movie who who was depicting and having to drink through encounters with their boss. Yeah, because we have all been there. We've all experienced the profound, like soul grinding alienation of having to deal with people that you know can't stand you, but you have to be polite to them because you got to make rent. And not even not even that they can't stand you, but that because of how uh, our our system has been rigged, they they have fundamentally lost the capacity to recognize you as a fellow human. Um, so, but just uh, thinking about thinking about Jess and her um, agency and her sort of choices as someone who who is pregnant and doesn't fall into the kind of um, sort of expected tropes of the seventies and, and horror generally. I know you kind of had some thoughts about this in relation to 
um, Silvia Federici. Yeah, definitely. Right? Uh, I know we mentioned Silvia Federici earlier in the podcast, and I wanted to bring up uh, Caliban and the Witch, which is which is ha, which is uh, one of. <laughs> we'll, we'll take all the puns we can get here. But it is a phenomenal book and it is a phenomenal understanding of the intersection of feminism and Marxism. And I think that one, one of the things that we see here with Jess is that Jess really, she, she's really breaking the mold of, of the, what we finally see as the, the final girl in, in later slasher uh, films. Jess is simultaneously uh, the, the virtuous, pure-hearted one. But she she's also mm. the one who kind of like bears the mark of being sexually active, which which would would have yeah, been her absolutely. damnation in in earlier films, and and you know like as as we say all labor is labor, which includes the labor of childbirth. You know it's it's it is yeah a hundred percent that's been totally co opted by capital. You know like labor is required to continue literal labor under capitalism, and it's and it's something that's been. Uh, also taxed under this and charged and been made an expense and we really we really see that with jess and and her desire for an abortion is that she doesn't want to to go through this work she has her own aspirations and her own drives that uh contravene this and we see uh peter as effectively the stand-in for capital when he demands that she continue it even though it has literally no bearing on her own goals yeah absolutely and you know uh any any kind of political practice that seeks to limit the agency of women uh, over over their bodies over that means of reproduction should absolutely be uh, resisted um, by any kind of worthwhile uh, Marxist or leftist uh, political project. Absolutely. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. Read Caliban yes, and the Witch, yes, read people. It, read it and then read it again, and then it is amazing. So given what we were talking about with class and the way in which um, this could be seen as a sort of like uh, retribution upon the bourgeois, educated, gentrifying middle classes with a distinctly kind of gendered twist, I think maybe it's worth talking a little bit about the slasher film uh, generally as a form because there are some interesting kind of political things going on within that, right? Yeah, yeah, the, the the slasher film as a form of retribution against class and against capital is is like one of its un, unsung tropes, I think. It's something that doesn't get enough attention. Uh, no, 100%. It's always had a kind of deeply ambivalent relationship, though, with capital, with normative statuses, with like the status quo generally. Big... Uh, kind of like confounding variable with this is is while you know like in this film the slasher is targeting these like laughably bougie characters like they like like their their class status <laughs> is very much uh like a caricature it's it's almost it's almost comic you know how out of touch they are yeah. through through their wealth oh 100 but, but at the same time uh -huh. it's heavily gendered like most slashers it's exclusively targeting women and, it, and it's kind of like mm -hmm. in, intersecting that targeting with sexual harassment. Reclaiming the figure of the slasher as like a Robin Hood against the bourgeoisie is, is a deeply problematic stance. And probably not one that I think we should no, take. No. Because when you, look at how, when you look at how this kind of develops, I mean, in uh, 10 years time from the, from the release of Black Christmas, what you'll have is the kind of beginnings of like the Reaganite, Thatcherite slasher. Yep where you have the kind of stereotypes of like a feckless youth who are interested in partying and drinking and casual sex and they're punished for it by this uh, seemingly uh, supernatural or quasi-supernatural violent uh, force. But here what you actually have is you have characters with some degree of agency and independence. Um, the director famously said that he thought that a lot of horror films didn't take uh, college students seriously mm -hmm. and didn't show that they were they can be quite astute and they can be quite intelligent and they can also be um, like drunk assholes like Bob yes. <laughs> multiple points so like I think the slasher is interesting um, there's a kind of deeply ambivalent relationship between slasher films and kind of capitalist uh, heteronormative patriarchy you can't say that horror is necessarily a progressive or leftist form 
we have to kind of contest it. We have to kind of wrestle with it. Um, but what do you think about this specific slasher, this, this uh, strange anonymized figure in the film? So uh, Billy, Billy, who is uh, the name of our slasher, we come to find out towards the end of the film, has, has I think, an interesting approach to things because it is his actions are hyper-sexualized. You know, we were seeing uh, the, the strong influence of Psycho in, in how he stalks these women and how he goes after them. Yeah, 100%. There's a strong, strong connection to Psycho, especially with his kind of whispered recollections about Agnes. Agnes. Yes, whoever, whoever Agnes is, I read that as we're, we're led to believe that that's some kind of mother figure for him. Yeah, yeah, a mother or a sister. Mm-hmm. So there's this sort of very um, psycho-esque, incestuous, libidinous sexuality at work. Um, which is sort of deeply unsettling. And the film makes the smart choice of keeping him almost entirely off screen. Yeah, I think the, the, the few clips we do see of him, he uh, reminds me of the script for Halloween and how uh, Michael Myers is never referred to in, in like person terms. He's only referred to, I think it's uh, the yeah. shape or the figure or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And what is, what is kind of striking is the way in which this, this film... Um, Bob Clark makes the choice of using, again, a very Hitchcockian technique of um, POV shots for for Billy, that we are placed in Billy's position. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so one of the things that I think makes that interesting is that it kind of implicates the viewer, yeah. right? It, it implicates us in that weird, incestuous, libidinous, taboo... Uh, eroticism and violence that he is obsessed with meeting out um of course this kind of leads on to maybe the great uh theoretical work on the slasher film uh which is uh carol clover's um incredible uh, magnum opus men women and chainsaws truly one of the most fantastic academic texts <laughs> ever written uh, for its title alone, it is one of the, it's easily one of my favorite titles of any academic work. That titling has been an inspiration for literally every title I've written for an academic work. It was just a divine <laughs> act of brilliance. Um, but Clover, um, it, like the most famous concept that comes from Men, Women, and Chainsaws, is the much discussed idea of the final mm-hmm. girl. Um, and I thought maybe maybe what we could do is we could kind of talk about her. Sk- her sort of schema of of who and the final girl is what in what way they behave and how this film maybe complicates a little bit of the the uh paradigm that clover draws up what do you think yeah i think um i I think the one of the key things to to bring up here is that black christmas exists before the kind of horror formula and the final girl actually coagulate and begin to exist as a trope you know, this is this is quite possibly the second or third slasher movie if you're counting Psycho, second if you're just counting Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And uh, Bob Clark's quote that that he uh, said about how he wanted to frame these college students is that um, it's not all bikinis, beach blankets, and bingo. You know, he he wanted he wanted to give them more depth. Those kids and their games of bingo. Darn kids! Know, know, that, that, is, that is, you know, if I'm a millennial for anything, I'm a millennial for my love of bingo. I am at the bingo hall every night, avocado toast in hand. <laughs> Hello, fellow kids, Hello, fellow youth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but it is true, though, right? He does. He does give them a degree of kind of um, greater depth than that. I would go as far as to say that I don't feel that any of them are truly just one dimensional caricatures, even Barb, who would be like the 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 quote unquote, like uh, a slutty character within the horror formula that would die right away due to due to their sexual impurities. Mm. I, f- I feel that like she is even given some depth as kind of a, a comedic character and a character with a strong spine compared to the rest of them. There is this there is this sort of genuinely sort of very empathetic moment. Um, when the first kind of murders have been discovered uh, and she's at, at dinner and she's mm-hmm. drunk far too much and they sh- sort of try and 
tact uh, tactfully shuffle her out of the room and she sort of lambasts them for thinking that it's her fault uh, why don't they just say it why don't they say that that's mm-hmm. what they think and she's so so sick of living in this world of kind of uh, bourgeois uh, moralism and manners in which you can never really say what you think which sort of really explains her her predilection for maybe drinking a bit too much and um, shows that in some ways I think she is she's a really sympathetic figure. I find that scene quite touching. Yeah, I, I definitely um that scene really took me aback. Like the rest of this movie I came very prepared for uh early early slasher cinema and early slasher tropes. I came expecting a lot of misogynistic violence and I came expecting a lot of like uh kind kind of like a preoccupation with the sexual perversions and things like that, but I I was not really braced mm-hmm. for kind of that really intimate moment we get with Barb's character where she she's intoxicated and she's breaking down and she's really she's really pointing out a, a major societal flaw that, that has kind of impacted her as an individual. And and even the the kind of so-called final girl, um, Clovis specifically mentions that they are typically paradigmatically uh, supposed to be yes. virginal. Um, and that is very much not the case no, here. The, the final girl in this movie is is quite literally not a virgin. She's pregnant, so I think that contravenes the formula before it even starts. Yeah, there are some interesting things going on there with sort of complicating that. I think one of the one of the downsides of Clover's work being so sort of successful and being so influential is that films do tend to be kind of like boiled down to fit into the yes, mold yeah. of men women men women and chainsaws and so it's nice to come across again something that could have just been so just basic and and schlocky and exploitative and surprisingly tense yeah. as well because it has has a great sense of pacing um and and it is quite funny in places there's that amazing scene where they go to the cops and bob uh says that their number is a new exchange fellatio five 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 six (laughs) and the cop is like can you can you spell that for me (laughs) so so there's um there's that scene in the police station later on where they're trying to to call barb for some information uh uh, the cops are and like Mm. like there's a cop in the background who's just in the credits as as laughing cop because he is laughing his head off at, at the Felicio <laughs> extension joke, and the fact that the, 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 his his coworker at the police station just does not get uh, that that Felicio is a double entendre. Oh, I get it. It's something something dirty. He says, and she does. She kind of takes takes a little bit of revenge on this kind of petty, officious desk sergeant who sort of tells her, "Oh, we'll take your name and number, and you know, if we can do anything for you." then we'll be in touch. And so she decides to have a little bit of uh, fun with this guy <laughs> and sort of embarrass him a little bit, which is the sort of petty revenge that I am here for. Oh, 100%. I am totally here for, for embarrassing cops. I think Barb, Barb <laughs> from, from a critical left perspective, uh, she, she served to remind me that the forces of cultural hegemony aren't just limited to individuals based on class, but that these forces police us throughout our culture and and at every every corner we turn they are there uh, metering our actions and our interactions mm, yeah absolutely and so if you can strike back at these petty officious bureaucrats who seek to interfere in your sort of day-to-day and actually hinder you from getting the help you need that you're being menaced by some uh psychosexual monster called billy then good for you <laughs> Maybe this provided Barb with a little bit of emotional release. You know, maybe this brought her a moment yeah. of levity. Maybe this cheered up her and her friends for a bit. And that 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 happiness is material. That happiness is praxis. And I, I think that's something that we would be remiss to overlook. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but going back, going back to um, going back to this this figure, Billy, who is kept like almost completely anonymized. Uh, and we sort of glean a little bit from his disturbing, vaguely animalistic, sexualized phone calls, a little bit of backstory and a kind of horrible relationship to this figure, Agnes. Um, he's, he's, he, it, it is the degree to which he's kept off screen that 
makes him such a compelling villain, right? Yeah, I, I would completely agree with that. Um, I think I think the studio wanted in the early edit of the film to make uh, Peter and Jess the villains together. And oh, that, right. And that uh, Bob Bob Clark resisted that. He wanted to keep uh, the slasher killer anonymized in order to keep the tension and keep the fear high towards the end of the film. And I think that would it have been uh, uh, Peter, who served otherwise as the red herring, it would have been a much lesser film. It would have been very boilerplate. And I think that's something that is maybe too forgotten, that there was a tendency to uh, sort of like fetishize the violence of the, the slasher killer, right? especially in more contemporary remakes and and reimaginings you instead of actually spending time with characters like uh, Bob and Jess who you grow to kind of be emotionally invested in you go oh let's find out about like young Michael Myers childhood for example which not not only diminishes the mystique of of Michael Myers as a as a villain but you go is there not something kind of ethically questionable about encouraging an audience to emotionally invest it upon someone who uh, commits acts of grievous violence, usually upon upon the bodies of of young women. And I find I find that these 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 temptations to like quote unquote like expand the cinematic universe and to build in these characters where they didn't exist before, they're 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 very they're very obviously often you know cash-ins. Oh yeah, so driven by that same profit motive. That in many ways this film is is informed by, and there is a there is a far less competent remake of this 2006. from two thousand six, yep. uh, which gives you a lot more detail about Billy and Agnes, uh, and it all just kind of diminishes the power of the film. I think it goes from an early uh, experimental might be a little too strong of a word, but it goes from from an early experimental slasher film before the rules were set. And it kind of it boils it mm. down and it reduces it to to this like in sugary, inedible popcorn film. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's um, it does it a huge disservice. And I think it's I think it's striking actually the the extent to which this not only shaped a great deal of what we know about the slasher, but it kind of resisted so many of the cliches. Yeah, it's definitely, you, you can definitely see uh, that this was made before those those cliches were laid down. You know, this was 1974. This was the first year for slasher films. And, and none of the rules were set in stone yet. And Black Christmas definitely had nothing to obey. And it, it would be interesting to kind of ima- imagine a world where Black Christmas laid the ground rules instead of Texas Chainsaw. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I think we would have maybe kind of avoided a lot of the uh, low-grade... Uh, casual violent uh, misogyny of a lot of those early slashes um i think though it's worth maybe kind of talking about this question of anonymity again which mm-hmm. we mentioned a little a little bit at the top of the top of the show when we were talking about um uh the issue of like online abuse in contemporary uh, contexts um and i know that you had um you found a kind of like a little bit of critical work on this and i was wondering if you could maybe sort of talk about that so, so watching watching the anonymity of the, of the serial killer, we in the initial shot of this film, we we kind of have uh, this this kind of like wide shot of the house, and then we move into the POV view of the serial killer sneaking around, looking through windows, testing doors, and then we get these these semi anonymized phone calls, which which have like a one to one mapping uh, for online harassment today, and and you you really made me think about um, is is this a horror movie and not, is this a horror movie from like the uh, pretentious hot takes movie article where this is too good and now it can't be horror because it's good. But um, Thomas uh, M. Sipos wrote in 2010, because horror requires an unnatural threat, it follows that there is no such thing as nonfiction horror, unless one means critical reviews of horror fiction, films, artwork, etc. Horror is a fictive genre like fantasy and science fiction. And watching this movie really got me thinking about that quote. It got me thinking because this movie is only horror if you're in an elect part of society. If you're in the upper class that is insulated from this kind of violence through its economic position, then this is horror because this mm. kind of thing doesn't happen. But if you're in any of, of the gendered or racial or, or economic classes of society upon which uh, similar kinds of violence are regularly visited... 
this really isn't a horror movie for you. It's it's just a somewhat fictive retelling. And I think one, one of the key points of that is, um, I believe four years later in 1978, uh, uh, Ted Bundy attacked the Chai Omega sorority at uh, Florida State University, which caused NBC to pull this movie from their nightly showings. The kind of inheritor of that is someone like the kind of pathetic scumbag uh, Elliot Roger, right? He deliberately said that he wanted to attack uh, sororities. He wanted to attack, uh, you know, young, attractive women. Um, so I, 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 I think that's a really interesting point that that sort of, we can treat it as a horror film as long as it remains unnatural, as long as it remains outside of the normal course of things but i think you're totally right that in many ways this is a direct example of a kind of very real experience that has accelerated and intensified with the advent of communicative capitalism and the advent of um social media and online anonymity i mean uh does it have to be fictive for something to be horror though so this is this is a question that that I've I've struggled with about the fictive nature for something to be horror, and I think um, like Sipos uh, draws a distinction between natural horror, which would be uh, something like an earthquake that 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 kills a lot of people or war. You know, the the these are yeah definitely horrific, but you know yeah no like you you would be uh, grossly grossly out of touch if you put like Schindler's List on your Halloween movie binge. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think that's that's where the distinction is is drawn for me is in the level of how fictive this is, and I think for for this film in particular. Um, the film itself isn't drawing that line of how fictive the film is. Um, the relative yeah. privilege of the viewer is drawing the line of how fictive this is. I think that's I think that's a really interesting point, and I think what I would try and connect this to is the idea that you know we live within a system which is both historically contingent and, in many ways, is a kind of story that has been built up that has been told to us right i think we actually need the language of horror to describe things in the real world because it's a way of avoiding a kind of ethical abnegation of responsibility you know we need to know that capitalism is a horrifying creation and uh, this is why marx used that sort of evocative gothic language all throughout uh, all throughout his work it's full of vampires and and capital crawling from the earth covered in in blood and gore and muck and i think if we are uh, i think that's a fascinating quote but i think we actually need to reclaim the language of horror as being the only thing suitable to coming close to giving not only a kind of ethical but a systematic description of contemporary capitalist conditions absolutely like i think if 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 you if you watch this movie and you're and you're relating to the material realities of these individuals, even though it's a fictitious um, and, and somewhat anachronistic retelling of them. You you are experiencing the direct effect of capital. I think that's a really interesting uh, quote. But the thing that I would query is whether there is an unnecessary space that's been assumed there between horror and the kind of real world. And I think what this film viewed in the present kind of shows is that there is a sort of collapse happening right that space between uh unnatural or supernatural threat that we can happily uh, experience some kind of cathartic release through watching and our existence in our uh, contemporary material and social conditions that that gap is collapsing right we're faced with ecological catastrophe. We're faced with an impending economic global recession that, that is going to be worse than the one that hit 10 years ago. We're faced with, you know, uh, militant fascists organizing uh, in the streets and hard right po uh, politicians seeking to strip us of our basic uh, social safety nets that were won through uh, decades and even centuries of hard political struggle. I mean, I think we absolutely have to insist upon the necessity of 
capitalism as a horror story, as this brutal exploitative machine, this this house uh, that is full of corpses, uh, where from the shadows these dangerous, faceless, anonymized monsters wait for us, is perhaps the perfect metaphor for what we're facing. I, I couldn't I couldn't agree more. The, the the space between horror as a genre of fiction and horror as a lived experience is rapidly collapsing. You know, like the, this this distance between what we can imagine as a terrible situation and what we're living through as a terrible situation is is shrinking rapidly. The, this is a movie that I know we're going to cover in the future, but but this was this got me thinking about Alien. Yeah, and absolutely. The, so the the fictive elements of Alien are that it's in space and it has aliens, but isolating the obvious fictitiousness of aliens and fantasy space travel, that that movie is the lived experience of everyone who's worked an industrial job. Yeah, a hundred percent, a hundred percent, and this is why, um, sort of on a critical level, it's so important for the left to take stock of horror as a movement. I mean, traditionally. Um, uh, Marxists and anarchists have always been much more interested in um, the sort of utopian futures, right? In, in science fiction, in science fiction, uh, socialists as well. Every 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 flavor of, of the left has been has preferred to think of the future because there is an imaginative capacity to create something new. But really, if we're going to actually reckon with and understand the depth of uh, the situation, the complexity of the problem, and the scale of the disaster that we are currently facing. You know, um, the Italian communist uh, Antonio Gramsci famously put it, you know, pessimism uh, of the intellect, optimism of the will. If we're going to be able to confront the monsters, you know, we have to be able to understand mm-hmm. them. And that, con- and that confrontation is essential. You know, this, horror is not just catharsis. It is imaginative political fuel. Yes. Uh, for for battling the monsters that we face here and now. And this now. brings me back to something you had mentioned earlier, that horror, it, this isn't just a pessimistic navel-gazing where we look at how terrible something is and we kind of wallow in that nightmare for a spell. Horror is a diagnostic tool. Understanding these films and approaching them with a leftist critique helps elucidate the challenges we're facing and and spell out quite literally who the enemies are. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. We are here. This is what the horror vanguard is here to do. We are here to, through the, through the lens of rigorous leftist theory and a deep fondness for the macabre and the dark and the strange and the weird, we are here to uh, diagnose and understand the uh, monsters of capitalism which surround us ever closer every single day. Absolutely. We we are effectively anti-capitalist ghostbusters. <laughs> All right. So, um any any final thoughts on on this Ash before we before we wrap things up for our premiere episode. I, I have one uh, incredibly important uh, vital to the future of leftist movement observation to make. Uh in the beginning of the film, Jess is wearing a sweater that has two giant hands on the front of it, which reminds me of the cloak from Manos Hands of Fate filmed in 1966. <laughs> I cannot prove this assertion, but I do believe Jess's sweater to be a reference to Manos Hands of Fate, and we can, I feel safely, uh, say that that is canon. Uh, heck yes. Uh, how, how about you, John? <laughs> Any final thoughts? Uh, I am, I'm just super impressed with this film, actually. I I was not expecting much, and it has blown me away. And I think um, it it's so compelling to sort of think about the ways in which even stuff which is kind of lowest common den- denominator culture, um, you know, like people like Frederick Jameson talk about the fact that like all culture is in some way utopian. You know, e- even this, even in this, we're striving towards the possibility of expelling the monster, of of beating back the monsters that surround us. Um, and that is uh, just inspiring to me. Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely, uh, I walk away feeling a very similar kind of like uh, almost paradoxically uplifting note with this film. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, if you enjoyed this, what we're going to do is in the show notes, we are going to put um, 
a few recommendations for Black Christmas, for, for other films. We will include links to all of the thinkers and all of the works that we've talked about. Um, and uh, as well as a kind of brief description of what this episode is all about. You can find us on SoundCloud. You can find us on uh, many other reputable uh, podcast hosting services. Uh, and of course, please do follow the Horror Vanguard on Twitter at twitter.com slash horror vanguard. You can find Ash and me uh, on Twitter as well. Uh, is there anything else we should uh, put yes, in here? A plug for our Patreon. Your, your critical material support is vital to the continuation of our spooky efforts. Thanks for tuning in, creeps and comrades. And remember, stay spooky. Stay spooky.